fellow Blue Earthers, and welcome to another episode of The Pod. My guest today is Mike Weeks from Laconic Infrastructure Partners, who are working to develop the world's largest organic, regenerative eco-culture projects. Mike is also an author, a resilience expert, and a former professional rock climber, and he shares some of the fascinating projects he's working on in Bali. We also discuss some of the flaws with environmental, social and corporate governance and here's some practical tips on what you can do to spot greenwashing. Hi Mike, it's lovely to have you on the pod today. Hi Laura, it's lovely to be here I think. And tell us why you're currently in Bali. There's a multitude of reasons for being in Bali. One obviously is the location and as somebody who loves the outdoors and surfs, the fact that it's one of the most, it may be even one of the best places in the world for, for surfing. I have two young sons, a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old, and Bali's the sort of place where they can actually grow up in another culture, an incredibly rich and often very, certainly by Western standards, a, a very strange, and I mean that in a complimentary way, the culture here is so alien compared to Western culture. Materialism isn't isn't the key factor people are deeply entrenched in their spiritual and their community beliefs and karma pretty much runs all the decision making for Balinese people and so you just have this incredibly compassionate and uh, very authentic communities around us those are some of the reasons but from a perspective that relates to Blue Earth Summit environmentalism Bali actually is a very special place I mean it's it's become a victim of its own success from a tourism perspective pre-covid there were 20 million people a year coming in here tourists all using all of the facilities and water and you know creating a whole lot of garbage and everything else and so partly because of covid but it was happening before the governor here governor costa is a brilliant man who's incredibly focused on both progress technologically but also keeping balinese values and one of those values is the protection of the natural assets here, the land and the ocean. And so the government here is making a very large, convincing push to turn the whole island organic in the next three to four years. So they want to do away with all petrochemical, non-organic fertilizers, urea, nitrogen fixers, pesticides. So agriculturally, they want to turn this into a bit of a utopia. Um, and also bring back a lot of the biodiversity that's been lost during the so-called green revolution, which is when chemical companies came in and sold everyone on the idea of um, higher crop yields at the expense of killing off all of the insect life. Um, and so at my company that I work at, um, the head of all of the business development activities, we have a very large stake in organic regenerative agriculture. And so we run an organic farm down here and we use it not to grow crops that we're going to sell it's a it's actually a non not-for-profit program but we test so we test organic fertilizers we test novel approaches we test different plants for water filtration because the water here is so uh, heavily polluted and so my a lot of my time even though i work in the office behind a computer for most of my day doing business development a lot of my time is also spent on a farm here understanding how we can restore polluted depleted rice paddy fields and bring them back to full life as well as supporting biodiversity and cleaning the waters and and really just giving the land a chance to come back restore and be like it was 50 years ago before tourism swept through 
I, I mean, I shouldn't speak on behalf of Governor Costa. He, he can do that himself. He's a brilliant man, but he wants the whole island to be organic by 2025. Now, I think that was scuppered by COVID. I think they've done 24,000 hectares of agriculture land where they've converted it from chemical farming over to organic farming. The wonderful thing about that is not only the biodiversity and the cleaning up of the chemicals in the waterways and cleaner, healthier organic food, but what's been the real shock to everyone has been a 20% increase in their rice yields. So it's a win-win-win. So yeah, there's another 100, I think I'm right in saying 120,000 hectares of land that is going to be converted into organic in the next uh, two, three, four years. I guess from a tourism uh, perspective, that will completely shift the nature of people who want to visit the island. Because if the project is successful by 2025, um, I'm sure you'll have people coming over to Bali thinking, wow, this is an amazing setup. What skills or knowledge can I take from this and bring back to my, my own land, my own country? Yeah, I think that is the case. And more broadly, I know that the, the, the Balinese people are probably a little bit fed up of cheap package holiday type tourists who come in and have little respect for their culture and little respect for their land now of course there's a flip side to that is that people need to eat and people need to be able to feed their families and and covid shutting down all tourism here for the best part of two years was a stark reminder just how reliant everyone is here the Balinese people and also all of the foreigners who have businesses here how reliant they are on that influx of tourism, whether it's cheap package holidays or whether it's high-end luxury. But I think most Balinese people, certainly who I speak to and I work with, and we employ a lot of Balinese people here, would be uh, the first to say that they would prefer a different quality of visitors, people who really respect the place and who are not just coming in to you know, get drunk on six seven nights a week and then stay in cheap hotels and so i think ecotourism is going to play a huge part in bali's future it already does to a degree imagine if you were told that you could come to one of the most beautiful islands in the world with some of the friendliest people in the world and the whole island was organic and therefore all of the rice you're eating and all of the vegetables you're eating and all of the fruits and everything and the water is is cleaner that vision is one that's going to compel many many people to come here who would not previously have come here bali is known for all of its beauty but it's also known for its garbage problems and its polluted roads and that's those are the other two approaches that are being heavily worked on uh, which is cleaning up the garbage and cleaning up the pollution here so i you know i live here because i think it's going to be something of a an, orga an organic utopia within the next 10 years and does the population of the island currently dictate you know what's happening i mean as part of this project that's going to be finishing in 2025 what happens if if the population you know increases dramatically does the the new system or infrastructure that's been put in place take into account that hundreds if not more if if not thousands more people would want to come and live live in bali the government actually is one for you to consider they're actually putting something called a nomad visa in place my understanding is that they've already agreed to the structure of it and the nomad visa enables people who work online or have overseas jobs to come in live here and live here and work tax-free for five years what that sounds like the best deal ever that's the point of it and thailand's just also thailand are a bitter head 
They have provided a nomad visa for 10 years. A lot of people have already picked up on that. And that's a 5% tax in Thailand. And look, the, the idea here is that you're going to attract people to come in, live here, work here and spend money here. And, and those are longer term people. And I think that makes a lot of sense because if you live here and you feel like you have a stake in the place, you're going to treat it with a lot more respect than if you're just visiting for a week. Again, uh, and I'm not going to pick any particular nation, but there are you know, certainly a few million Australians who come in here. And many of those people obviously come in and respect the, the environment and respect the, the culture. But, uh, you know, you get a lot of and Brits as well and a lot of drunk young dudes who come here and they just want to make the most of partying for a week. Those are not the people who are going to put time and effort or attention into ensuring that the place becomes cleaner and more environmentally sound and that there's a sustainability to it. So I think a it, it, it brings in by having a nomad visa, you bring in lots of money for accommodation and restaurants and people are spending but you also get a better quality of um, attitude because the longer you're going to stay here the more you're going to want it to become a better place to live and i certainly know that from the many dozens of people that i know here um, who are all really focused these are people who are not in the environmental or conservation you know business but they will regularly turn up to do garbage pickups and they're regularly making sure that their communities are focused on keeping the place clean and and um, taking sustainable practices very seriously. Interesting. I'm going to so look that up after this pod. Um, you mentioned that Bali has a garbage problem. And is that a problem that Bali has created? Or is that because first world countries are depositing their rubbish <laughs> around the beauty of Bali? There's definitely no import of garbage. I don't, there's no way that the governor and the provincial government here would ever allow that. They're way too proud and a way too smart a people. I do, from what I understand, some of the other islands in Indonesia, and you've got 17,500 islands in Indonesia in the archipelago. From what I understand, they have accepted garbage from other countries in the past. Um, I, I think that's probably uh, been stopped. Certainly, President Joko we here would... Um, would have stopped that i think right in saying um but bali has its own problems because obviously 20 million tourists coming in and coming in for a few weeks at a time they're using throwaway plastics you know small sachets there's another problem here as well and it's a, an economical it's sorry an economically driven one and that is that most indonesians they it's a very low medium wage across indonesia and so they will often and this is from my experience of employing and working with Indonesian people, they will often buy just single throwaway packages because it's cheaper. They're not going into the supermarket and buying a $10 shampoo in a tub because they just don't have the money to be buying $10 shampoo. So they'll buy a 25 cent shampoo or a strip of them. And then those are throwaway plastics. The other problem here in Bali that you have is that traditionally only up to probably 40 or 50 years ago when you know, there wasn't plastic here and so a household would throw all of its waste at the back of the house into the stream it's called this part of the subak system which is what feeds all of the rice paddies here 40 or 50 years ago throwing all of your garbage into that stream was absolutely fine because it was completely 100 organic 
it would have washed down the streams and it would have broken down and it, a lot of it would have just been eaten by fish because it would have been all organic waste and there's a lot of carp like fish in the those streams uh so there's a there's like a continuation of that practice in many places where the garbage is just thrown in the stream and they don't really consider that the garbage quality uh has changed it's plastic it's not going to get broken down and so I, i guess one of the the hurdles for balinese people is that they're so incredibly dedicated to their spiritual beliefs that you do ceremonies maybe three four times a day this is where they're praying and they're giving offerings and that may be to temples it may be to certain trees it may be to all of the very important spiritual places for them and what has happened over the last 20 30 years is that those offerings used to be foods and flowers and tobacco and soy sauce and they would be placed in natural banana leaves and the likes now they're in plastic because of the convenience and so you get just tens of thousands of these offerings that are out in the streets and all these different places that have plastic in them and that's become uh, you know that's that's one of the, the the problems the other is that bali's just not really caught up on its garbage disposal in that the systems in place are not quite sophisticated enough to handle the actual amount again one of the things that the government here is doing is looking at waste to energy and how they can take all of that waste and turn it into clean energy so um you know there it's a developing country it as i said before it's a victim of its own success from a tourist perspective but they are making great great efforts to solve the problem and i think the waters and the streams and the ocean here 5 years from now will be completely different they'll be clean and they'll be a delight to swim in what's laconics role in both the rice paddy fields and and the garbage problem so laconic is the company that i'm working i'm one of the original founders of the business activities from regenerative agriculture to environmental intelligence which is uh, what we're probably the best in the world at right now um and laconic so we only work in sectors that are good for the environment good for humanity we're a real esg company there's no greenwashing you know we're 100% transparent company everything we do is open to be scrutinized and here down in bali we're obviously like i said working on regenerative agriculture practices but we're also advising on a lot of the uh, big problems the waste to energy for instance the real big one that we're going to be working here on next year is carbon credits is carbon accounting and ensuring that moving forward that bali actually has a, a really strong position in protecting its both its uh, carbon sequestration areas in the water these would be seaweed beds these would be coral reefs as well as its land based so all of its forests to be protected those that many of them already are and to ensure that the carbon that's already in those forests is quantified uh, so that we know what's in there and it isn't going to be released because of the protection and then when we take this organic regenerative approach to agriculture what that actually does is it causes a a net sequestration of co2 rather than an actual expulsion of it in chemical farming when you plow the land or till the land and when you use urea and you use fertilizers and herbicides and pesticides of the chemical form like that causes a response in the microbes in the soil that actually gets them to release co2 it's a stress response ultimately 
they become under attack. And in that stress response, they release a whole host of chemicals, CO2 being one of them. When you actually take a restorative and regenerative approach where you're, in many cases, actually spraying bacteria on the land and you're not tilling so deeply and you're using what's called cover crops, so there's always roots in the, in the soil, uh, maybe you're using grazing as well, that causes a net sequestration. Uh, I think the most accurate stats in farming are there's something that about 30% of, of the world's uh, greenhouse gases come from uh, agriculture practices. And so if we can change those practices, we can actually, instead of being a net releaser and adding to the problem, we can actually uh, sequester uh, and cause a massive, create a massive carbon sink whilst also creating healthier foods for people. So it's a win-win again. If we go right back to the beginning, what uh, does ESG stand for and what, what role does it play? Oh, well, it's a term that really has been hijacked by anyone who wants to make money from looking good. Uh, not anyone, but uh, well, it's true because there's so much BS out there. Um, so it stands for environmental social governance. And so this is looking at business activities that are beneficial to the environment, to society, and they are governed by, it, it is intended to be uh, very strict protocols and rules. In our case, uh, at Laconic, everything we do is environmentally sound and socially sound. We wouldn't sacrifice one for the other. In here, for instance, I can tell you very clearly, we, we pay double the rates to our farmers working on our land that would be paid to, and it may even be more than double, what other farmers are being paid or what they're making on the land around here. Um, and that is also making them working in a on fields that have no chemicals that are likely going to cause them cancer. They have great working conditions. Um, everything we do has a benefit to local communities and the broader society, as well as to the environment. So ESG is environmental social governance. The problem with ESG is that so many big companies, uh, they put it on their proverbial maybe they even literal business cards or in their marketing and it acts as a way to do greenwashing so they'll talk about doing environmental social governance but actually this is like big oil companies who are making let's say 50 billion dollars in profit putting 100 million dollars into solar or renewables or hydrogen it's total bs but you know those companies run on run to make profits and so from a business perspective it's understandable but good luck having a business if there's if it's scorched earth and we don't have an environment for the business to be sustained from in 20 or 30 years so esg is a way of uh, stating your intent to do good in the world as a business and so if you're not if you're not working um in esg or you're not working uh in a business that's adopting sustainable principles or BS principles, as you like to put them, where would you start learning about like these kind of concepts and topics? Look, uh, the reason that opinions are polarized on it is because it's not because of the principle of it. In principle, it's a fantastic idea, but it's the fact that companies will use it, will hijack it to make themselves look good. This is, this is greenwashing, right? This is Hedge funds who say, hey, we, we're a hedge fund who invests in sustainable development. We invest in organic cotton. And that's 1% of their total fund. And the other 99% is arms and oil and gas and cheap, crappy clothes that no one needs that children have been making in 
third world countries. Uh, so it's used as a shield to greenwash. And, and that's the difficult part of it is how do you actually cut through all of the uh, potential fake use of the current ES, need for ESG um, activities and, and governance. And it's not going to be governments that impose that. You know, the need for this is too big and there's too many companies and there's always just ways around it. So um, I think you can probably create your own measures for understanding whether you're working with ethical, genuinely ethical companies. And that's, that's by looking at how transparent they are. So, for instance, I have a mild obsession with the clothing company Patagonia. And that's partly because I'm a surfer and a climber and they make some of the best clothing in the world. But I, I, I hate shopping. If you want to take me through a day of hell, you take me shopping. I would rather lay on a bed of ants covered in honey than go shopping. However, if I happen to be accidentally walking down a high street because I got lost and I see a Patagonia store, I'm probably going to jump in there. Now, I'm compelled not to buy clothes because most of the time I don't buy anything. I'm compelled by the fact that it's a company that, and, and I don't work for Patagonia, by the way. I have actually done some training for them in, uh, in California when I lived there. But I don't work for them. I don't have anything to do with them. I'm not sponsored by them or any of that. But what I love about them, and there are other brands just like them, but not many, is the complete and utter transparency. So when they've made mistakes, like some years ago, they found out that their merino wool in their clothes was coming from sheep that had been really ill-treated. And in many cases, they'd, they'd been slaughtered or, or all sorts of terrible activities. And, and they were the first to fess up. As soon as they found out, they didn't try hiding it. They fessed up. You know, they, they did an actual campaign. And they lost a lot of customers because of it. For me, it just reinforced my, my commitment to a company like that, that they would actually fess up to their mistakes. And the founder, Yvonne Schoenard, and I'm, and I'm creating a loop here for your question about where do you start when you're overwhelmed with all this stuff. The founder, Yvonne Schoenard, who's a climber and a, and, a, and a surfer, in his own words, you know, he loathes the term businessman. He became an unintentional businessman and that company uh, now exists really to support the planet. The reason I say that is because uh, somebody like him isn't worried about profits. Uh, they're more concerned about the value and the, what they're putting out into the world that's beneficial. If you want to learn about ESG, by the way, before it was even coined, the term was coined, um, I would read Let My People Go Surfing, which is Yvonne Schoenard's book on how to run a business. For me, I've read it three times. It actually is probably the turning point for me going from running a consulting company and being a coach, which I did for many years, to actually deciding that I wanted to work in a company that had an environmental impact and a big impact. So to cut through all of the, the BS, the question for me is how transparent are they? How much of it is left hidden? How much of it is, that, is there that I can't figure out from, yeah, there's a fancy website and there's a this and there's a that. Like, we say to anyone who wants to work with us come down to bali or come to our offices in chicago uh, come to bali and see our farmers come and see the work we're doing here come and see the land that we're restoring come and see our relationships come and see what we do where we put our own money into what we're doing here speak to our farmers when we're not around ask them whether they love the work that they're doing see the non-chemical inputs that we use you know see the deep commitment that everyone has and so i'm not trying to sell our business here but i'm saying that's the kind of level that we should expect from companies if they're going to claim that they're doing good in the world be transparent show us what it is that you're really really doing don't be hiding your arms deals behind your one percent of organic cotton investment because it makes you look good
And then my second question was, in the history of agriculture, um, why were uh, chemical products like brought into the farming chain or, or, or the farming agricultural cycle in the first place? Well, I'm no farm or agricultural historian, for one. I mean, I, I joke about being a farmer myself. You know, I walk around our farm asking for things to be done on the farm with our team here. Uh, but the real farmers who are out there seven or eight hours a day are, are not in this podcast room right now. But I do have a deep interest in agriculture uh, because I have two children and I I suspect that agriculture will be one of the major factors in the years ahead that will either ruin the planet or give us a chance to actually restore and protect it. If you look at the degradation of the Amazon rainforest, much of it is for agriculture purposes, of course. It's chopping trees down, it's chopping old growth forests so that you can grow soybeans. And those soybeans are being grown, probably genetically modified, so that they can feed cattle, so that people in rich Western countries can eat beef or maybe just some of the filth that, that you buy in fast food burger chains. But to answer your question around the uh, the chemical inputs and why they've been implemented is because, well, one, so from a pesticide perspective, you know, it's much easier just to, to spray tens of thousands of acres with a killer agent that kills all the bugs than it is to try and encourage predator bugs that will keep a natural balance you're going to make in the short term at least a lot more money by using chemical herbicides and pesticides and fertilizers because you'll get bigger yields at the start now those yields of course are going to be deeply um, penetrated with those chemicals uh, down here where uh, the rice paddy fields are sprayed with fertilizers and urea and uh, pesticides many of the farmers here don't eat their own rice they sell it and they use that money to buy cheaper rice that comes from up in the mountains where none of the chemicals are being used so they'll they know that what they're producing isn't really edible they don't want to feed it to their kids and so the core reason for all of these chemicals is cash it's money and it's not just the money of the chemical the agricultural fertilizer and pesticide companies because they're making billions of dollars and they certainly are now with the increased prices of fertilizers but it's uh, overall yields for farmers and look it's hard to be a farmer most farmers live on the edge when it comes to money you know it's very very difficult to make money as a farmer and so if somebody comes along and promises you a magic potion that is going to increase your yields great you're probably going to take it the problem is it, it only lasts over a couple of decades you can look at all of the data in farming to see that you need more and more of those chemicals to increase or just sustain the yields. When you take an organic regenerative approach, actually the land and this thing called nature, which has been, there's got us this far, it keeps restoring. And so you don't have to keep spending money. And in fact, we have a terrible business model because the fertilizers that we use over a period of time, probably about four or five years, even on land that's been pretty much destroyed, you just don't and you just don't need it anymore after four or five years because you've created such a rich soil microbial environment environment that it just does it itself. And that's where we want to get to. We don't want farmers dependent on any kind of fertilizers. We want them to be able to go back to a state of being able to use the land effectively so that it keeps regenerating and restoring itself. 
then they make more money, of course, and everyone's happy. <laughs> um, will you be talking about that at, at Blue Earth? Blue Earth, I will be giving a presentation on microbes, mangroves, and environmental monitoring. And the reason I'm doing that is because there is no single approach that's going to get us out of the uh, mess that we're in from the climate change perspective, from pollution, from the loss of biodiversity. Uh, there's no single approach. And I can tell you that microbes, mangroves, and environmental monitoring isn't going to get us out of it, but it's going to make a big impact. And so I'm going to be talking about how we need to take a systems approach to a complex problem. You cannot take a simplified idea or a simplified attitude to something as complex as natural systems collapsing. You can't just look at honeybees and say, by restoring honeybees, we're going to regenerate you know, vast amounts of uh, pollinating needed areas of, of meadows. You're going to have to look at it much more intimately and intricately than just single approaches. The problem is, is that most businesses and most governments want single, very simple solutions. They want to be able to take it off the shelf in a can and you just can't do that. It's like COVID, you know, you get hit by a viral pandemic. Everyone should have known one was coming, anyone with any sense, because they have happened before, therefore they will happen again and we'll get another one as well, who knows when. But the race to just put masks on people and isolate them and vaccinate them, great. All of those approaches may have benefit, but they were seen as these almost singular, very simple uh, effects and as we've seen from the data there's a it's had a huge impact on people's what's known as mental health and well-being way beyond what covid could have had for certain demographics and i'm not particularly focusing on this but there's a rush in the panic to create very simple solutions and that's what governments around all around the world and companies are, are trying to do with the climate change problem they're rushing and panicking to go this one one approach is going to do it and you can't just take a single, simple approach to a complex situation. What you actually have to do is test. You have to do safe-to-fail tests in any complex situation. So you have to test, 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 test with lots of different approaches. So I, that's what I'm going to be talking about at Blue Earth Summit. I am looking forward to that. Could you tell us what your blue thread is, the thing that ties you to the cause? What drives me, what motivates me is actually... Again, it's, I mean, it's very selfish. It's altru, you know, I don't know if there is such a thing as altruism. I think everyone who does acts of, of goodness for others is probably getting so much from it that it's very difficult to say that we do anything purely altruistically. But the nearest I can get to that is that my reason for doing all of this, you know, I'd like to be a part of this agricultural renaissance and I'm lucky to be in a company with a CEO and a board and investors who believe in doing what's right in the world. And so I'm doing that for my kids. I cannot face seeing myself as an old man and saying to my kids, sorry, I was lazy. And I sat by and let this catastrophe unfold. And so especially when I know that there are brilliant people out there who just sometimes need rallying and bringing together and then giving support and brilliant people who are much more way smarter than I am who have solutions. And so for me, it's finding those people and applying them to the problems and resourcing them 
so that when I'm an old man I can be a little less guilty when my children ask me what I did to make sure that the planet stayed blue and green and healthy. Blue Earth Summit is happening from the 11th to the 13th of October 2022 in the great city of Bristol. We believe in the power of the outdoors to improve our health and further establish purpose-led business. Register your interest at blueearthsummit.com.